So we're in Ecclesiastes 9, and we're going to get, it, get through to Ecclesiastes 12, 14. So we're going to finish the book today. Um, and I think it's appropriate because the way Solomon, as he's working through this book, he's going to take us in kind of rapid fire through some, some lessons about life in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and then he's going to land the plane in 12 with the point that he's been trying to drive home from the beginning. Just as a, a reminder, the way this is written is he's, he's writing about wisdom, and he's writing about wisdom as it's seen in, from two perspectives. One is under the sun. One is that all mankind, whether they believe and fear God or not, can benefit from that wisdom. And then there is a wisdom that comes from knowing that there's a God in heaven who oversees all things, and that, that trumps everything that takes place on earth. We're, it's, we're subservient to that truth to the point where we as believers, those who fear God, can sing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Even when terrible things happen, even when, when uh, bad events happen in our lives, it can be well with our soul because we know ultimately it brings glory and honor to the Lord. That he's in the one, he's in he's in control, and he is causing all things to work out for his purpose, and for those who love him also for our good. But ultimately, it's for our good because it's according to his purposes. So when we start, I'll just we're just going to work pretty rapidly through these first three chapters today. When we start in. Chapter, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, we see that uh, life works out the same for everyone as we view it under the sun. The, the term under the sun is used four times in these nine verses as a reminder. This is what life is like for everyone if you don't acknowledge there is a God. Verse 1, therefore I have taken all this to heart and explained it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hands of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the Son of Men are all full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterward, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor of they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. The ultimate outcome for all of us is that we will die. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. All of us have that to look forward to. In my other life, I'm a physician, and one of the things I, I do in that role is I teach residents and students, and I like to teach the students and the younger residents, the older residents finally have an understanding of this, is every patient you are taking care of in this next 
few years as you're training will be dead in 100 years. So you better have a better reason for being a physician than to save lives. Because you'll save a life and they still end up losing it. That's, that's the nature of this. And I tell them that to drive them to having a better understanding of what motivates them day to day and why they do what they do. It shouldn't be just for this world. Because in this world, if this is all that matters, then whether you're a good person, whether you're an evil person, whether you're righteous, whether you're wicked, we all end up in the grave. If you take a dog and a lion and you pit them against one another, unless you have a Rhodesian Ridgeback and they can take on a lion, but um, ours couldn't. Ours would be afraid. Um, so you have, you have, surely a live dog is better than a lion who's lying there dead. If you're putting money on who's going to win, bet on the dog then in that situation. So he uses some of these colorful pictures to drive that point home. And finishes there in verse 6 with their love, their hate, their zeal. They all go away once they're dead. And that's true for us as believers as well. Once, once your life is done, you no longer have those things in this lifetime that you, that you get to experience. And the things, the impact that you have on this on this earth, it is the exception rather than the rule that whatever you have loved, whatever you have hated, whatever your zeal has been about, whatever you found worthwhile putting on Twitter goes away with you when you're gone. So you better have an understanding of what is important beyond what happens under the sun. Verse 7 to 9 gives us an idea of how to respond if it is true that all that you have in this life, he gives you a little taste of some wisdom here. And he says, go then. If this is the case, then go then. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. God's already said, okay, that's what, this, is, this is a good thing that you have. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman who you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. If you are separated from God and do not know him, then you should live life as though your reward happens now. And you should enjoy life. Don't live it the way I do. I'm pretty much busy from the time I get up to the time I go to bed because I'm trying to achieve something that's beyond this world. But if you're not, take some time and enjoy your life. Sit down and have a beer. I mean, maybe even have two. It'd be a good time to remind ourselves that in Matthew 6... That the rich people who have all their wealth and they enjoy it and, and they enjoy what it buys them have their reward in full in this life. God has designed it such that you can pursue these riches on earth and you will have your reward in full in this life. And then it goes on later and Jesus teaches us that this is not where we lay up our treasure. We do not lay it up in this world. We lay up our treasure in heaven but if you're separated from the love of God and you do not fear him, if you do not believe in God, and we're going to cover that belief in God and fear of God is the same thing. You don't separate those two. So if you don't have that, 
If you don't have that fear of God, if you don't have a belief in God, then your reward comes now. And so you should do those things. Enjoy the, the fruit of your labor in this life. And hopefully all of us are driven to the fact that, no, we, we do want more of that. He hammers this point home then in, in the next few verses as, as we move forward here. Actually, all the way from, from chapter 9, verse 10 in Ecclesiastes, all the way through 10, verse 7. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol when you are going, where you are going. When you're dead, you don't get to try anymore. We have the phrase, you, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And that's what this is, is echoing. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Verse 11 is, is, is to remind us that when you get ready to do something, let's say you have a goal in life, you want to build a business and, and you're working towards that business, and you're laying out together all the plans and everything, and you decide you're going to build a car wash. That seems to be a popular thing to do in Omaha right now. They have all these car washes popping up, and you decide, I'm going to build a car wash at 72nd and 370. And you find out you have no way. You can put all of the time and energy and make all the right business decisions, get all the financing lined up, and do all the planning, and be ready to go, and you go and purchase the land, and two days later you find out that someone has already purchased land a mile away, and they're going to open their car wash a year before yours is open, and you've just invested all this time and money. So even though you were wise, even though you did all of the research and everything, there were things you could not know. The race doesn't always go to the swiftest. The battle doesn't always go to the warriors. I have a friend that raced in Iowa last over in Des Moines yesterday, who puts in a ton of time, a ton of effort, great guy, was really looking forward to this race, and he gets there, and it's a, it's a four-lap race, 13 miles a lap, and in the second lap, he dropped his chain. His chain fell off his bike, and he had to get off and hook it up. His race is done. No matter how much he prepared, the race didn't go, and he should have finished in the top three. Instead, he finished almost dead last. So understand that's how life works, and we all know that. We all have experiences where we were totally prepared, and yet it didn't turn out the way we thought it did, or we see that in other people's lives. It doesn't always go to the swift, and the, the battle doesn't always go to the greatest warrior. And on top of that, to, to drive that point home, he makes a point in verse 12 that you don't know when your life is done. None of us do. There are those in this room that may not make it home today. We don't know. We have no idea. Verse 13, Also this I came to see is wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There is a small city and a few men, and in it the great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. And probably despise there, is, we think of that as being a more strong word of, of uh, animosity towards the person. It's not really, it's more like 
His words aren't even, even remembered and honored the way they should be. As well as the man is despised and his words are not heeded. And the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I think the point being made here is that wisdom is not necessarily tied to honor, and that honor is not necessarily tied to wisdom. In other words, if you're a wise person, just as the race doesn't always go to the swiftest, just because you're a wise person doesn't mean you're in a position of honor. And just because you're in a position of honor does not mean you are wise. But very often we assume that. We assume that if you have had, if you, if you, again, will look at business, if you are a great business person and you've built a large company and you're running it well, the assumption is you must be really wise. Let's get that person on a board for a business or in a church or elder. Let's make that person an elder. They must be really smart because look at the success they've had in their life. Solomon saying, no, I've seen it too many times. That's not the case. Just because somebody is in a position of honor doesn't mean they're wise. And just because someone is wise, it doesn't mean they earn honor through their wisdom. And he gives an example of that. And he's going to touch on that a little bit more here. In, in 10 verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. So I think there's that verse 18 of chapter 9, verse 10, or 1 of chapter 10 and 2 of chapter 10, are all showing that the weight and the, the, the severity and the impact of foolishness and of sin has in life that's otherwise good how quickly it pulls your life down and, and brings you lower. Whereas wisdom, it's very difficult to build, build something up with wisdom. So the person, the, the person who's assumed, who's a poor man who offers a word of wisdom that saves an entire city, doesn't get elevated by such a great act. But do something foolish and it, it'll be remembered for sure. Even when the fool walks along the road, the sense of lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allies great offenses. Again, that weight of foolishness far outweighs a single act of wisdom. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places which, which rich men sit. I'm sorry. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Associating someone's status with someone's wisdom and the way they've lived their life is an evil is is an unwise thing and it's one of the evils that we have in this world. We had last time we talked about the evil that that it's better to be in a house of mourning. It's better to be at a funeral than a house of celebrating and that's an evil that's part of this world that we are forced to live in under the sun as we await God to make all things right. This is this is building on that. We 
One of the great evils is that we see those who have acted foolishly are yet set in high places and, and those who deserve to be in high places are sitting in humble places. Verses 8 through 11, He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If a certain bites before being charmed, there is no profit to the charmer. It's good to be prepared. It's good to work. It's good to find the best way to do something, the most efficient way to do something. The best way to be productive. But understand, even in that preparation, in that work, it can be your undoing. Literally tearing apart a wall and falling through and getting bit by a snake on the other side, if you hadn't have been so uh, energetic and so active in trying to accomplish a thing, like breaking down this wall for a purpose to maybe rebuild it, then you wouldn't have been bit by a, a snake. If you hadn't been working so hard quarrying stones, they wouldn't have fallen on you and you wouldn't have been hurt by them. And that's, that's the point he's trying to make is even... Even in your preparation and your hard work, that can be, in that can lie your undoing. You can just feel as we as we've progressed here for a chapter and a half, Solomon making it clear the difficulties that are associated in this world. That this world doesn't work out like you should expect it to all the time. Even though honor is not tied necessarily to wisdom, foolishness is a guarantee of lack and suffering. It eventually does, in fact, catch up to you. And as we look here at verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies his words. No one knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. I suspect he's, he's looking at, at what's happened around him or even looking forward to what's going to take place in the future. But he says, you know, I've seen it where, where those who have a king who's inexperienced and lacks wisdom... This is what it looks like. The princes are feasting in the morning. The blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time. Why do they eat? They eat for strength. They don't eat for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Again, living a life of foolishness will, in fact, bring upon you hardship. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. So again, we're looking back at, in 18 and 19, we're looking at this country that's run by, by a fool, by apparently a young fool. Meal is made for enjoyment, and you're like, whoa, 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 I love food. 
Isn't that why we make food? No, food is actually there. Yes, there's the benefit of enjoyment, but that's not the purpose of your meals. The purpose of your meal is actually to feed you, to make you so you're strong enough to do the next activity. We could learn that in our country. Our country has, has, has rejected temperance when it comes to food. We've, we've rejected moderation, and that's what this is showing. This food is not something to be taken in as a, as a means of production. It's taken in as a means of enjoyment. Wine makes life merry. We've made the point already, both here and previously in, in Job, that wine isn't bad. But if wine is taken to make you happy, just as you eat food to make you happy, that's a problem. Money is a great tool. It can accomplish great things. But if it becomes your answer to everything, that's a problem. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse the king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. It's an interesting verse to place there, but I think it's also reflecting on the fact when, when your, your king is a fool, and your king is, is, is ruling in such a way that does not bring honor to the land, and he's not managing the resources well, as soon as he finds out, and he's going to find out your attitude towards him, It won't be one of thank you for helping me see the error of my ways. It'll be we do not want you involved and you will be punished and removed from any area of influence and maybe even the cost of your life. This king does not want to know anything that they're doing wrong. When they hear it, they ignore it, and they're just glad when you're gone. And probably even blame you for any problems that exist. Chapter 11, then, you do not know the outcome, but don't let that make your life be idle. Use it as a motivation. So cast your bread on the surface of waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on this earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or to the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. So here we're talking about, again, you don't know what's going to happen in life there in verse 6. So keep going and do what you need to get done. Make, be aware of what needs to be accomplished and work towards that end. And I've heard the cast your bread on the surface of waters for you may find it after, after many days, talks about putting things forward and, and investments and, and trying to send things out and hopefully you come back and you get some return on what it is you've done. And I think that's, that, that may be a, a decent interpretation of that. I think verse 2 is actually talking about uh, being generous, spreading your wealth around to those around you for who knows when you might need it returned to you. And then we have this picture of... of some certainties in life. When clouds are full, they pour out rain. And if a tree falls, that's where it, that's where it is. It fell, it's there. That's where you're going to find it. 
Things just happen and you don't have control over them. But if you sit by and you just watch the wind and you're waiting for the wind to die down to, before you sow or, or you look at the clouds and you're wondering, boy, I wonder if it's going to rain tomorrow or the next day. Um, and so I don't know if I should put seed in the ground yet because I want to time it just perfect. You have no control over the weather from day to day. Get your work done. Verses 7 through 10 then. The light is pleasant and is good to the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, a man should live many years. If a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Seven and nine is, is explained further in nine and ten, uh, using light and darkness. So in verse 9, rejoice, young man, during their childhood and let the days, let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and allow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Again, this is in context of the life you've been given because it then says, yet no. So do this, but do this with the understanding that God will bring you to judgment for all things. And this is where the... the Ecclesiastes is now going to pivot into 12, which is going to give us the answer to everything that's been taught so far. Yes, enjoy those opportunities you had. None of us would tell our children, none of us would take an 18-year-old who just graduated high school and say to him, now, I want you to let your heart be pleasant, always be happy, and follow all the impulses and desires that you may ever have. Right, Morgan? Is that a bad idea? That's probably a bad idea. None of us would tell us that without adding, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. God has given you great abilities. God has given you great opportunities. He's given you maybe wealth. He's given you maybe friends that you know or opportunities to be at a certain school. He's given you all these things. But understand, you can enjoy those, but you get to answer to God. He will bring you to judgment for all these things. So you either have to control the impulses and the desires of your heart, or you make your impulses and your desires of your heart line up with what is good. And your impulses and desires actually allow you to enjoy those things knowing that God will judge you someday. But it's good advice to remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, especially in the prime of your life, and enjoy those things that God has given you. Chapter 12, then. Remember you're also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. And the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Now, again, I'm going to lean on, what, on my profession here, and I will tell you that, that 
90% of the people I know who are older than 70 hate it. And I have to tell them, you know what? Life is an endurance event. It is, it is not intended that when you turn 55 or 60 or 65, it's ease from then on. You've somehow finished the race and now you have nothing left to do but sit on a beach and drink a margarita, I guess for 12 hours a day, and then go back and sleep it off and come back and do it again. That's not how this life works. It's not designed that way. When you're that age, it actually, now you need endurance and strength. Now is when you really need to have the Lord on your side and you need to have your goals and priorities in shape. Otherwise, you become what's described here. And what follows here is a description of what it's like to grow old. If you doubt that, uh, for those of you who are older than 70, let's say, you know these things to be true. For those of you that are younger than 70, here's a good description of what life will be like. You'll have no delight in your days. The sun and the light, the moon and the stars are dark, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day of the watchmen of the house tremble, and the mighty men stoop, and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through the windows grow dim. The doors on the street are shut as the sound of grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Picture of a person as they grow older and... and you know, the grinding ones are probably the teeth and, and looking dimly through the eyes, you've probably got cataracts and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low and, and the sound of the bird and the, everyone sings because you're losing your hearing. It's really a, a depressing picture, if we're honest. Then it goes on to describe it further. Furthermore, men are afraid of high places and terrors on the road. Almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. I had to look up caperberry. It's a caper. Does everyone know what a caper is? What do we do with capers? Pickle. Okay, we pickle them. What do we use them for? Okay, we use them, we use them for like the flavor in them, right? Super flavorful. And the, the issue here is that you, you, you lose the ability to enjoy even the taste of things. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. So that's the picture again of life as you get older. If your life is, is all built around under the sun, when you get old, you will know that's the way you built your life because you will be miserable as you age. This is, by the way, why we have older men and women in our church and we need to have them around because we need to know how do I handle living this life as I get older. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. You can assign all those different things to different organs of the body. I don't know if that's necessarily what's intended there, but the whole idea is, again, your body is winding down. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gives it. Wouldn't that be terrible if that's all there was in this life? In fact, it's expressed by Solomon when he says in verse 8, vanity of vanities, evil upon evil. All is evil, worthless, vanity if this is why we live and we should we should be really glad that he doesn't end ecclesiastes there 
He carries us on then to the end. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. We've read some of them in Ecclesiastes. Josh went through Proverbs a couple summers ago. Solomon also put together for us uh, the uh, um, also uh, um, probably published for us Job and what we understand of Job. He wrote some of the Psalms. He has all these things arranged for us, all of them, so that we may know. And the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. And there's some value to that. Verse 11 says, The words of a wise man are like goads. And the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. So the words of a wise man are like goads. So uh, dads understand this. When you give your child some wisdom, it's, it's to spur them on. It's like, no, you have to keep going in this way. <clears throat> Don't be lazy. Don't sit around and do nothing because... If you do that, your poverty will come on you like a, like, a, like a thief. They'll come and take everything from you. That's using wisdom as a goad. And then there's times when wisdoms are like, wisdom is like a well-driven nail. Like it it's comes at just the right time. And there's people that have this ability. And probably if I memorized more Proverbs, I could do it better. But it, an opportunity to offer a point of wisdom right where it's needed. And that's the benefit of these Proverbs. And ultimately, they're given by one shepherd. They're given by the one who oversees all and knows and understands all. The Proverbs themselves are, and they're they're used with these. The Proverbs themselves are, and they're used by individuals, but they're all given by one shepherd. He's, He's making the claim that these aren't his. He's not the one who's who's written all of these Proverbs down out of the formation of his own thoughts and ideas. These all come from God himself. But beyond this, my son, be warned. Well, beyond what? Beyond using Proverbs as as a goad and as a well-driven nail, be warned. The writing of many books is endless. And excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Now, this gets used and applied to all books. It shouldn't be. This should get used and applied to Proverbs and wisdom. And we're going to get to why he's saying you can write too many books about the way you should live and how to be wise. We as Christians in this day and age have a lot of books about how to be wise and how to live rightly. And we all love to read them. And they're, they're spiritual self-help books. He says, you can, you can write all this stuff down. Basically, he's saying, I've given you enough. There's enough in the Word of God in just the wisdom literature that Solomon gave us. That's enough. You've got enough to do it now. You could write a whole lot more, but there's no point in it. You can make some money off of it, but there's no point in it. All you're going to do is wear people out. And I already said you should probably try and enjoy some of the life you've been given. So what is the point? Why is it he can say that, hey, wisdom has has 
an extent to which you don't need to go beyond that. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So there's a limit to the wisdoms and the Proverbs that one could record, and we could try and record more, and we do. There's people who have built huge wealth off of teaching us to be how to be wealthy. You know, Dave Ramsey's a great guy, but you know what? You don't need him. Why? Because wisdom cries out in the streets. There isn't anything he can offer you that, one, isn't in in Proverbs. And two, wisdom doesn't just scream at you. Don't spend more money than you make. Why do we need to pay someone to tell us that? We don't. But more importantly, what is the motivation that should cause us to act rightly? What is the secret to all Proverbs? If there was one thing where no matter what the situation I was in, I could understand what is the wise thing to do. And he's saying there is something. There is something that overrides all of these things. And that is the fear of God. We should, we should define the fear of God really quick. Because there are some that will say that the fear of God is a holy reverence for who he is. He's above everything. And Solomon says, bull. That's not at all what it means. Why do we fear God and what is, the, what is the substance of this fear? The fear is because he will bring every act that you do to judgment. Those that others know about, those that only you know about. So how is it you learn to act wise? You learn to act wise by fearing God, by understanding he will judge you for everything you do. You are in his hand and he sees and he knows you and everything about you is there. For him to see. That's the fear we're talking about. And I don't know about you, but that makes me tremble to know that everything I've ever done will be seen by God. It doesn't make me feel, well, he's a loving father who's going to hug me in spite of whatever, everything I've done. That's not the picture he's giving here. Now, that's true. In Jesus Christ, we can cry out to God as our father. And we could go down that route. Fathers, are your children afraid of you? Meaning what? Do they think that if they do something you told them not to do, there will be consequences? They need to because you're the picture of authority to them on this earth that that God has established and it helps them understand how God acts towards sin as well. And you don't understand the grace that we have through Jesus Christ without understanding, first of all, the fear of the Lord without that grace that we receive in Christ. When you come to worship this morning, can you do that reflecting on this belief in God? And I would, I would use that interchangeably, the term belief in God with fear of God. Because you can believe there's a God, right? There's a God, This earth couldn't exist without somebody who's in charge of it and making it, 
I believe in God. Well, okay, then what does God expect of you? He put you here. He must have put you here for a reason. Well, he put me here, I suppose, to do what he wants me to do. Well, what if you don't do what he wants you to do? He's, a, he's, he's over everything in the universe. Do you suppose he's going to have a reaction to it? If you truly believe in God, you will fear God. You can't separate that. If you truly want to know if you believe in God, do you have a righteous fear of God? Do you have an understanding that he will judge you for everything you do? I did not know we were going to, I assume we're going to sing holy, holy, holy today. Because I heard you practicing it. It was in my notes beforehand, so I apologize. How do you sing it? When you sing holy, 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 first of all, we got those words from heaven itself, given us into the word, this is how God is worshipped. When you sing that, do you understand what you're saying? You're saying that God is completely different than you, completely good, and part of that goodness is a righteousness. And part of righteousness says, if somebody does something wrong, there has to be a response of judgment for that wrongdoing. In fact, we all want that, don't we? Don't we all long for the day when those who do evil must pay for their sins because it doesn't always happen in this earth? So how do you sing that hymn? I don't think you can sing it without a belief in God and part of that belief being a knowledge of the fear of the Lord. It's an incredibly reverent song. It's a very deep and meaningful song should be sung that way, not mumbled. I should stop there. So our fear for God is because he's righteous. We understand his righteousness requires that things be done rightly, that sin has a punishment, and therefore we're afraid of that. It's beyond just a reverence. It's tied to judgment, this fear. When we train our youth, do we train them in the fear of the Lord? You can take youth and bring them all in, and we're big on sports in this church. So you can take our youth and you can train them in sports, and you can teach them all these principles of life. Well, you know what would be better teaching them the fear that they have to answer to a holy God someday? Anything you're learning to be better in this life. Understand you have to answer for a holy God to a holy God. How should I raise my children in this situation? How should I respond to my daughter and the way she's behaved? Well, understand you have to answer to God for that someday. So yeah, maybe ask somebody who's been through it before. Maybe turn to the word and read, but understand that that ultimately you have to answer to the Lord for that. The fear of the Lord is not just some abstract idea that we can look at and say, I as a believer no longer have to worry about this. Christ covered all my sin. I don't have to fear God anymore. It is true that there's a loving relationship there that now covers the punishment for your sin. But it's also true that there aren't any good men in the Bible who tell us about the fear of God I'm sorry, it's also true that there are a lot of good men in the Bible who tell us about the fear of God and they experience it. We look at at the fear of the disciples when they saw Jesus calm the sea 
and they realize that who he is is God himself. I think that's how you'll respond when you meet him. I think you'll understand that, yes, I am, I am united to Christ in all he's done for me, but I am also in the presence of a holy God, and it is a terrible thing, terrifying thing. That's maybe a better word that gives you the better picture, but it is a terrible thing. Fear of the Lord is in, isn't just an idea, but it's also in the context of our actions under the sun, what takes place on this earth. The fear of the Lord is understanding and having a belief in God, a true belief in God. If you ask somebody, do you believe in God? If you ask, a, ask you know, the Catholic Church, you know, clearly, if you ask their priests, do you believe in God? They're going to say, yeah, I'm a priest. I, that's my thing. Well, then why is there so much pedophilia throughout your organization? It's kind of like, if you truly believe in God, why is there no fear of God that he's actually going to act upon what's going on there? It's real. It's not just an idea. And understand that there will come a day when we are, each one of us is before the Lord and there will be a vast number of us who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all this stuff? And say, you never knew me. Depart from me. Well, why will he say that? Clearly there's a belief in God because that belief was never tied to an action. You didn't actually know me. If you did, you wouldn't behave the way you behave. You wouldn't do what you do. You don't understand the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that all of the, the wisdom in this world can be boiled down to three words. Fear the Lord. We understand, Lord, that for our minds it's difficult for us because to believe in something less would allow us freedom to pursue our own desires and our own selfishness. Lord, allow us to know and understand you and that that knowledge and understanding would produce a reverence that includes not only loving you as a Savior and having your grace poured upon us that we might cry out, Abba, Father, but not separating us from the knowledge that you are a holy God, three times holy. And because of that holiness, we should fear you. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the ability to fear you and more opportunities than we can count of why we should. I pray that you'd just cause that to be in our hearts, that we might be people who are noted to be wise. Amen.